Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Awesome. Let's go ahead and kick this thing off. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line, everyone. We hope you're having a wonderful week. Matt, how are you doing today? Not too bad. You know, I think I'm finally starting to get into the holiday spirit. Ah. That's, you know, helping. Yes, think, yes, uh, it is. Yeah. So have you watched any Christmas movies? No. So my wife watches all those like Hallmark movies, and I am told to leave because my commentary is not welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. can see that. I can see that being a problem. Yeah. You're not shy when it comes to giving input. However, I don't know if you're a fan of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, but we watched that this weekend and it was just as good as it always is. That is a family classic, I will say. Yeah. I do have a joke to share. Yes, please. What has 27 actors, three settings, two writers, and one plot? And the answer is 671 Hallmark movies. (laughs) Did your wife find that funny? She did. I mean, she gets it. I like, I don't don't, (laughs) know. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll make, you know, oh, she cares too much about her career to ever find love. She's moved to a small town. You know, it's like, yeah, she'll like be like, that's actually what this one's about. Now leave. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, hopefully everyone else is having a good holiday season. And, you know, it's I think 2022 is going to be a great year. And so we should definitely finish strong with some good flow line topics. Today is a great one. Matt, we're going to talk about waste management, not the golf tournament that's in Arizona each year, although that is, I've heard, a great time. We're talking about things like disposal of cuttings, whole mud, all of that stuff relative to drilling fluid. So Matt, what do you think? Should we get talking about waste management? Yeah, I think it's an important topic and I don't know how much we've kicked it around. So I I thought it would be a good one. Right. Well, before we kick this off, I do want to say with regards to waste management, we did some episode or I think a episode with TWMA, a company out of the UK who, who really specializes in waste management. And I say that to say... If anyone's interested in this topic, I would certainly go back. I forget exactly which episode it was. Perhaps we can put it in the show notes, but it supplements this topic as well. So absolutely. Yeah. But okay, Matt, so waste management, how would you describe it? And then we'll go ahead and get diving into the details. I mean, I think drilling waste in general is a pretty broad topic, right? And and this kind of drilling fluids guys, I you want to focus on that, but it's sort of hard because waste gets hauled off as waste, right? And it depends on where you're at too, you know, and if you're in the jungle or a really environmentally sensitive region, even, you know, the rainwater that hits the rig is collected and it's sent away as waste, you know, and so we'll, we'll try and focus on the drilling fluid residue on cuttings and then, you know, whole mud as well, you know, and kind of go through a bunch of these options because, you know, there's so many, our discussion is not going to be exhaustive. But just to give some people an idea that there's a lot out there beyond just whatever you're used to in your area. And, you know, all of that stuff is going to change depending on what mud type you're using, what types of additives, what the regulations are, what the operator's policy is. In the U.S., where private landowners have a huge say, it could just be straight up that even though the regulations allow something, the landowner could say, you're not drilling on my land unless you do X. And then, you know, 
the regulations on the on the final material, you know, what's feasible, what's most economical, but am I allowed to bury it? Does it need to be in a certain condition before it can sort of be considered, you know, done and dusted? And of course, in the big picture of, of drilling waste, you know, there can be a number of hazards, there could be other things. And so there's liability involved, right? And so we don't won't get into that too much, but it's certainly something to keep in mind. Right. No, there's a lot of, I guess, options out there again. And then you mentioned a few sort of things that it depends on. And a lot of times too, it could be, you know, operator specific. There's just, there's a lot of things to consider, but even further kind of more on a, on a sort of granular level, what are some things and some considerations that we really should own in on before even, you know, maybe in the planning stages of a project? Well, you know, we recently did an episode on total cost of ownership, right? Like what's the big picture cost? Because Perhaps, you know, it could be that you have an option between oil-based and water-based mud, but oil-based is going to have a higher cost of disposal. Water-based, you might be able to dispose of on-site and that could save a lot of money in trucking and that sort of thing. But in a challenging formation, you might also have higher drilling days. You might have much higher dilution rates, which increases your waste volumes. You know, so you've got to think about the whole picture of both the whole life cycle of drilling fluid and things they touch, you know, and, and volumes is a huge one. You know, if the longer we're screwing around, if, if, you know, if we have to drill slower with a lower performing mud, we're going to have probably a longer impact. We're going to have more waste, but there's a lot of times where we've talked about it. Water-based mud might not drill as fast, but it might be the right choice in an area where things aren't well known. And then, you know, hauling waste, how do I transport it? So if you're in the middle of nowhere, you may pay a lot in trucking to relocate this waste to an approved site to process it. So, you know, if, if you're out in an area where there's lots of drilling, there's probably well-known, you know, practical ways and everybody else has already sort of found the most cost-effective, but, you know, there can be any number of other situations, you know, a great example, you know, when we did Pure Star up in the Northeast, it was from a social and a disposal perspective to use a clean oil, to use a chloride-free internal phase you know, made a lot of sense because it required a lot fewer trucks. And it wasn't just the cost of transportation. It was going through rural townships with trucks in areas where they're skeptical of the oil field, you know? And so I don't know how you assign a dollar, but that's a, you know, kind of a total cost of ownership consideration. And then, you know, finally the liability question, and this can come in a number of different ways. It may be that there's communities that start taking measurements, right? Of certain levels and you need to stay beneath them it might be safe to just not have anything in the drilling fluid that exposes you with that kind of risk or mm-hmm. that you might go over a certain threshold. It could be that you alter your solids control program to minimize certain amounts of waste. So think about offshore, you know, you can discharge cuttings, which is great, but it requires a, a cuttings dryer or some other, I'm talking about the Gulf of Mexico specifically, and it's true in some other countries, right? You know, you've got to get more of the residual oil off and you have to use a specific kind of oil to qualify for that. So yeah, all of the above. And quite frankly, you know, so many permutations and combinations, I thought I'd just throw out a few things to think about. Of course. And I'm sure the listeners out there that, that are familiar with this topic may have some other ideas, but th- those are certainly the big ones to consider. And then on top of that too, as a mud engineer, you know, speaking from that side of things, typically when you go, you know, if say you're, you're used to drilling in South Texas and all of a sudden you get transferred over to you know, another region where you're drilling in a different basin, you're likely not responsible to know 
the ins and outs and exactly what and what you can't do. But it's important to at least ask questions, talk to you know your office, and just get an idea of sort of what that area or that operator's protocol is just to make sure. Because there may be things like, again, the way you operate in one region is going to be different from the other. So understanding the differences, I think, you know, from us in the field as mud engineers, it's good to say, hey, okay, I'm getting transferred up to PA or say mm. Colorado. Things are, they operate so much differently. And so it's one of those where just get ahead of it and plan your business accordingly. Because if you start all of a sudden dumping things on the ground and don't report it, in one area, it might be okay, but then in another, it's like, oh, you can't drop a single drop of, you know, fresh water on the ground without it being reported. So a lot of it, you know, is already in place as to how it's supposed to be handled, but it's up to us to follow suit and make sure that we, you know, that we work in accordance with whatever policies or standards or guidelines are set typically by the operator, which are then set by other organizations. But anyway, just wanted to clear that out there. It's, it's not everyone needs to run to government websites and EPA websites to figure out where they're operating and how they're supposed to handle waste. Cause again, as mud engineers, it's not quite, you know, our responsibility, but it's our responsibility to know and act accordingly. So just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. Good point for sure. Cool. So what about evaporation and burial? Those are, you know, again, on site things that we need to also be looking at and, and understand as well. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it could be as simple as you're allowed to bury the cuttings. Maybe they're water-based you can evaporate a certain amount of liquid phase by basically just leaving everything in a pit, waiting for the water level to go down, and then you can bury them. Obviously, it matters what's in that waste as to whether that's approved or not, but there are certainly scenarios with water-based mud where it's, it's not uncommon. But you may have to take it a step further. And I mean, one thing I'll point out, normally these pits are lined. Sometimes they're not. It depends, but most likely it's actually a lined pit. But you could take it a step further where you can go through what's called fixation. And this may allow you to bury it. It may allow you to reuse it. It may allow you to do other things. But fixation is the idea that you would mix these wet cuttings with something basically cementitious is the word I've looked up, which basically adds something to it like cement or fly ash or you know, some other cheap material that's going right. to tie up whatever could run, you know, leach or run off. And so that can help with stabilizing any residual waste material. And, you know, but you can also reuse this material and compact it down as a road base. That's one thing that on lease roads and that sort of thing, people like to do. Mix it with good soil and basically kind of, you know, let it dilute it down as an overall concentration. But fixation for even, you know, diesel-based mud cuttings is not uncommon. But the whole idea is tie up whatever could let's say rainwater hit it, could wash off and leach into the soil and create harm. Tie up those things so that they're not available to, they're still there, right? Like that's the shortcoming on this. Yeah, no, that's true. And so what about on the discharge side of things? And when I hear discharge, I think right away offshore, but can you speak on that part? Yeah. So, I mean, and this goes back to regulations vary. I've actually heard of oil, you know, oil percent limitations, on land aren't unheard of, but you know, this would basically be a certain percent by weight oil on cuttings. There's API procedures for this. You're allowed to dump it overboard. They've done environmental testing to see how long they biodegrade and what happens if they were to pile up on the seafloor and, and that kind of thing. And then land, it, it might be a specific base oil or get the oil below a certain percent. 
And, you know, we've talked about in the past and what we may, we'll discuss here, some other technologies that will actually get residual oil low enough that it's maybe not that, I think it's like 6.9% by weight for Gulf of Mexico discharge, get it considerably less, but it requires more energy. It's more costly, but it may be so low that it's almost negligible. But discharge, yeah, can you dump the waste overboard? And sometimes, you know, we've talked about if you're doing exploration work, why KCL glycol systems are so popular. They're inhibitive, they're relatively inexpensive. And, you know, depending on how much KCL, you know, chlorides and other things, you may just be able to dump them overboard. If you're working offshore, you may be able to dispose of it in a way that is fairly straightforward. So yeah, discharge, it's one of those that sounds horrific, you know, dumping fluid into the environment. But once again, you know, if, if you focus on what it's made of, you can make a mud of relatively benign things knowing that this is the option you're going to pursue. Yeah. And again, it's understanding where you're operating and really what the rules are associated with that. An interesting, you know, sort of topic with regards to waste management is, you know, something land farming and bioremediation, you know, stuff where things can basically break down. But can you elaborate on sort of some details regarding land farming? Because again, it's kind of one of those things that's like, you know, (laughs) you think, oh, we're already getting sort of, looked at from a different lens and then, oh, well, we're drilling and we're using these chemicals. And kind of like you said about discharges, like it sounds bad. Well, we're just going to farm the cuttings and everything that has gone down hole. We're just going to spread it around. But in actuality, when you look at the science, a lot of times it's not quite as detrimental as what one might think just looking at it from a 30,000 foot view. So can you sort of describe land farming and why it may not be as terrible as, as what it might sound? Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is even some of these nasty components break down, right. And a lot of them, it requires an aerobic environment, right? So if you buried them and then dug them up 10 years later, they'd still be there. But let's say you spread them out and you actually till a pile of this stuff with other soil and, you know, turn it over every, every few days over time, you'll see dramatic reduction in that residual material, which may actually, which, you know, potentially, depending on what's in it, once again, could leave you in a place where you're actually, you know, compliant and that waste can just be thrown away like dirt. However, you know, it takes time. So you need a lot of land space, you need time and you obviously, so you you need a dedicated disposal site. You know, some of the things you can do, you can add nutrients to help break this stuff down. So there, you know, you've heard of bugs that like to eat oil and that kind of thing. You can actually throw those in there, but all of this takes time, right? So it's a landmass, a time, a period of time, and the amount of cuttings that are going to be generated. But I've actually, so down in New Zealand, they use, they use a paraffin-based oil because there's a certain species of worms that you could basically make these big piles and the worms would break down the oil-based mud cut residue. So there's a lot of different ways to go about this, you know, land farming and bioremediation. I think kind of the hard part about it is it can be very, very basic, and then it can get very complicated depending on how much monitoring is required and that sort of thing. But ultimately, you could break down a lot of this waste into basic components that aren't necessarily as harmful. And so it's an option. And it's an option that's used in a lot of places here in the US for sure. Right, right. Do you know, I mean, you've worked all over the place. Is it, I mean, would you say the U.S. is pretty strict in, in a lot of areas relative to other parts of the world or, I mean. 
No, I mean, I would say it's pretty, I don't know if loose is the right word. It's not nearly as strict as, as other places I've worked, but I think there's certain reasons for that just by way of regulations, you know, the laws are much more clear here, even though they might be hard to understand, but like someone can explain what you can and can't do. Yeah. Other places that seem to be more strict, you know, they have any number of reasons as far as environmental impact. I mean, that's why it varies by state here in the U.S. So it really depends. But the other part of it, I think, is sort of the mindset of, okay, this stuff's going to break down over time. Let's let it. But then you could also find yourself in the trap of, you know, or not trap, but like the option of, well, what if I just never let it get, what if it never has that component? You know what I mean? Yep. No, that's a great point. We talked about being able to put stuff, discharge or, you know, spread stuff on, on surface. Everything we've talked about so far has been above ground, but you know, you can also inject some of the stuff we're discussing that. So again, you know, may not bode well with some environmentalists, but I think once you explain it, you all we may understand that it's not, you know, quite as intense or maybe perhaps negative as it, it might be, but there are opportunities or situations where we could inject a lot of waste, which again, waste can be loosely defined, but talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So waste injection is, there's kind of two ways to do it. You know, one is almost like, you know, we drill these SWD wells to get rid of produced water every once in a while, but think about grinding up the cuttings into a slurry and pumping those away as well. And so, you know, you could have a dedicated well around other wells that are drilling and you could have this well, it's just got a, basically what it is, it's a real basic unit. It's effectively got a shaker, a centrifugal pump with like a aggressive tooling on the front of it so that it will actually, as you circulate, it'll grind down the cuttings and then a high pressure pump. And you basically circulate over a, a classifying shaker until all the material is small enough and normally it's vist up with some xanthan gum or something and, and you pump it away. So you circulate it over itself, all the stuff that go, you know, stays in the system or, or is passing through the shaker screen is a slurry. You pump it at high pressure down hole through, you know, into a dedicated zone and you can pump liquids away and you, you can kind of get rid of anything that is slurified or, or liquefied. And so this is a fairly common occurrence in like development work offshore when you're on a platform you know, things like that. In the North Sea, they actually, they'll even do this where they have a shallower injection zone. What they'll do is they'll inject the waste between two annuli in the, in the active well. Oh, wow. So they install a specific kind of casing where you just basically, you know, inject between the two spaces and it's going to go into a zone that we know it's, you know, can hold pressure and you can seal it down there. But, you know, the nice thing about this is the argument is a lot of these cuttings came from formations down there, why not send them back from whence they came, you know? And so waste injection, particularly for cuttings, is a good option. It can be an expensive option. You've got to watch out for well communication. You've got to monitor your pressures, you know, and this certainly, you know, versus a saltwater disposal well, which is just injecting produced water at very high volumes and that sort of thing. These things get a little more limited traffic. And so I think there's, you know, a lot fewer questions about induced seismicity, but they're also handled very carefully because many times they're the primary disposal option. And because of that, they need to work. You know, if you're on an offshore platform and your option is to inject or haul everything back to town, you'd really like that injection well to keep working. And so a <laughs> yeah. lot more resources are spent making sure that 
waste injection is you know properly executed and monitored. Great point. Thermal distortion or desorption. You threw that on yes. there. I don't think I've heard of that. So this will be a learning one for me too. Think of like a retort kind of. Okay. So what you're doing is it's basically like a horizontal furnace and you're passing the heated fluid and drill cuttings through and this heat evaporates oil and water off the cuttings. And so you dramatically reduce your waste volumes because all you really have left is cuttings that really don't have a lot of oil. And you can actually even use like if it's the oil to power the unit because it's basically burning oil for heat. So, you know, it reduces waste volumes. I've seen this in Latin America and, and there were some projects in North Africa I was aware of. There was an interesting one with, I think in Algeria, you know, way, way, maybe in the seventies, they buried all their diesel based cuttings and it was sort of this horrific environmental thing. And since they were all in an aerobic environment, when they would start digging around there, they would find all these diesel based cuttings. And so the project was to go back to these cuttings that had been around for 30 or 40 years and then put them through a thermal desorption unit, recover the diesel and properly dispose of the cuttings you know, way, way after the fact. But this would be another one that you would probably not just have dedicated on a rig. You'd have it where a bunch of rigs were feeding it. This was actually something that we used in Azerbaijan where the recovered base oil was then sent back to, sent back to the mud plant and used to make new mud. Interesting. I think there was, if I remember correct, there was a company in Oklahoma that did this pre-downturn. And one of my customers had asked if we had the ability to do something similar, which you know, again, at the time we didn't quite have the solution that they were looking for, although we just, we did something different. However, I think it's not very common, but I know it has been done here. And I'm curious if anyone out there is doing it as well. And, and really it was just, at least for the operation that was being done up in that area, it was a quick and dirty way to essentially recycle mud. And there was a, certainly a, a huge cost benefit to doing so. But anyway, again, that was before we were involved with that operation. But either way, again, not common, but something that has been around pops up every once in a while. Yeah. And I think some of their, you know, their big units, they're capital intensive from a safety perspective, you know, they're probably made safer now, but they're maybe not the best. They're really suited for like remote land kind of operations. But if you want to, you know, Blast from the past, go back to TWMA. You know, we talked about the hammer mill in detail, which, you know, those rotating hammers would generate heat and separate oil and water from the cuttings. And this was an intrinsically safe thing that you're seeing these hammer mills be put on offshore units. You know, they've obviously got to be really safe if you're going to put them on an offshore rig or even a drill ship. And yeah, you get that recovered oil. And, you know, the cuttings are very essentially almost free of oil. And so, you know, there are like truck mounted type trailer units of these available. Yeah. And so in the right place, right, the right application, this is a much safer, more precise for sure, like more manageable and controllable. You can, you know, knobs you can turn as opposed to just heat it up and let it rip, yeah. you know, kind of what thermal desorption would do. So hammer mills, uh, I think, you know, we may see more of them in, in certain projects. And they've certainly been used in the U.S. on land. And I don't really have a bad thing to say about them. I think it's actually pretty cool technology. Yeah. And too, a lot of what we're talking about, like regarding ways to be able to 
save oil from cuttings, a lot of it comes down to you know the price of oil and the economics behind it. So if it makes more sense to spend the money to save oil, they'll do it. You know, and then on the flip side, if you know, say we're in a, a market cycle where oil based mud is cheap and people are trying to give it away, then you know that can change things as well. So, but again, lots to consider. Matt, another one that we recently talked about electrophoresis. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I said it right for the first time. Thank you very much. Again, can you give a, a quick review of, of what that is? So basically, you've got your fine solids, you're running a current through there, they want to stick to each other, and so they'll fall out. And so it can help you clean up, especially whole mud. You know, we dedicated a whole episode to it, kind of talking about how it can be a little slow and time consuming, but it can be a worthwhile option to minimize your waste, you know, because Waste management, as we've talked about total cost of ownership, what you are trying to do is find the most cost-effective option. And a lot of what comes into play isn't just the cost of disposal, but minimizing the amount of volume you have to dispose of. And certainly that likely lowers your chemical consumption and you know other things that you know oil and gas companies tend to like. So yeah. I left it in there. Or I wanted to not fail to mention it, but it's another one that we did an episode on and Certainly, listeners have a look out for it if if you want to learn more about it in more detail. That's it. Yeah, and again, there's lots of options, like we said. And really, if, I'm curious if anyone's listening, and, and there's some either neat technology or something that you may be doing that we didn't mention. Reach out to us and say, "Hey, this is something that we're using on this rig or on this project or in this part of the world." As much as you know, we're exposed to a lot. There's there's things that we don't quite see or, or or get exposed to as well. So, and I think as time moves on and the initiative and, and and pressure to just get more and more environmentally safe and do things differently per se and, and adapt to this, there's going to be I think more technology, more emphasis on on really managing what gets disposed of or managing how it gets disposed of. So, I think having you know at least a good understanding of what's available is important, Matt and I mean, again, anything else, any takeaways for the listener before we let everyone get back to business? I mean, this is continually evolving as our regulations and expectations and priorities. And, you know, as Justin, you mentioned, it probably isn't an exhaustive list. There may be some cool things going on in some pocket of the world we don't know about. And it would add some color to hear from listeners on that. But the rules generally are that environmental regulations don't get less strict, right? So yeah. it may be that you're not using this in your area. It may be completely foreign to you, but it doesn't mean that it may not come up. So it's it's good to know what's out there. And then try and think about the big picture. You know, as, as you mentioned, as a mud engineer, it's probably not your job to know about these things, but being aware of them, especially as you are asked to help implement some of them or think through some of these the challenges be good to have have something stored away in the old noggin. Yeah, exactly. Well, Matt, thanks again for you know the wealth of knowledge. And if anyone out there has any questions or wants us to elaborate on anything, let us know. Or if you have ideas for a show or have simply any questions, that's again, I mention this every episode, but please, if you have a question, reach out to us on LinkedIn. Even if it's something small, we'd be happy to answer it on an episode that a lot of times creates some of the best content for us. You can also check us out at aesfluids.com. You know, aside from, you know, products and information, we have a lot of great content on there and really more for just an educational tool to learn about drilling fluids, learn about things that we're discussing. We've got tech tips on YouTube, check those out as well. And again, it's, you know, we're coming up on, well, well over a hundred episodes. I think we're going to be 
hitting 200 here before long. So if there's something you'd like us to revisit or an episode that you'd like us to supplement with, yeah, please let us know and have a great holiday season. Be safe, Matt. What do you say? Happy holidays, everyone. (laughs) Sounds great. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.